Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast. My name is Freddie Gray. I'm the deputy editor of The Spectator and the editor of its US edition. We thought that 2020 was going to be all about the presidential election, but now it will forever be the year of the pandemic. So instead, Americano is going to look at how COVID-19 is transforming the United States and its politics. There's a lot to talk about, perhaps even more so than before. So please keep tuning in. I'm joined today by Michael Brendan Doherty, who is a senior writer at the National Review and a great friend of mine. And we're going to be asking, where's the beef? Michael, I say where's the beef, and I should clarify it for listeners immediately, because you wrote an excellent piece under that headline asking if America is going to run out of meat or be unable to provide enough meat for itself and the perhaps huge implications that could have on the presidential election in November. Could you give us a little summary of your argument? So America's meat industry, both like pork and beef, it's a domestic industry. Most of the meat consumed in America is from America, is raised in America. And the processing and packaging of this meat is done at industrial scale in a shockingly small number of plants. You know, 70% of America's pork goes through just 20 processing plants. And I think the number is like 60% of America's beef goes through the 10 largest beef processing plants. That's for butchery, packaging, and then shipping to supermarkets. And what has happened is there have been outbreaks in some of the largest plants that have led to shutdowns, mass absences, and we have, you know, the CEOs of some of these companies like Tyson's saying that, you know, 10% or 15% of America's pork is going to just not make it to shelves. Because of the backups, we're having some some people who raise poultry are saying that they're going to end up having to plow under millions of chickens rather than send them off for slaughter and consumption. And this will lead to empty store shelves of a resource that Americans just assume is part of their lives. And it'll be the first major shortage of an essential in America since the 1970s oil crisis. And I think because this, I think this is a very symbolically rich event in that if anything Americans believe they could do, they believe that they could feed themselves, at least feed themselves meat. And the failure to do this will look like, you know, if, it, if it's realized on our store shelves in the next couple of weeks, the failure to be able to buy this, I think, could be very devastating to Donald Trump in that, um, you know, if anything, a nationalist president shouldn't be presiding over a breakdown of such an important national industry and one that's associated so richly with our kind of American self-conception as the land of plenty. So anyway, I think, you know, we're still waiting to see how supply chains react. The president has, you know, said he's under the Defense Production Act. He's going to order workers back to the plants because this is a strategically important resource and industry. But of course, Donald Trump has said a lot of things during this crisis that turned out not to happen, right? He said that we would have testing sites at all the Walmarts and Target superstores, and that hasn't come to pass. And it looks like 
there may not be much substance to this Defense Production Act invocation. It raises quite a lot of interesting questions about about economic nationalism and about you know how Trump can conceive of economic nationalism because, I mean, Americans wouldn't think of their agriculture as something that is a sort of globalized thing, but in fact it is, is it not? As, as you suggest, these plants are huge, multinational. Some of them are owned by Chinese investment. They are not America first food plants, are they? No, I mean, so as you point out, you know, one of our largest producers, Smithfield, which has a very American sounding name, (laughs) maybe even an English sounding name, Smithfield is owned by a Chinese conglomerate in one of the biggest sales. Its plants in the Dakotas are staffed by immigrant labor, mostly. I mean, the, the reports coming from NBC News say that over 40 languages are spoken on the factory floor in Smithfield's plant. And that Smithfield, the company was only capable, however, of issuing health guidelines during this pandemic in English. And when you have people speaking Amharic or Tamil or uh, any number of these languages that you know, a lot of Americans might assume aren't even present in the Dakotas, there are bound to be problems. And one of the reasons we've had the outbreak, particularly in these meat processing plants, is apparently not just the poor communication, but the close quarters on the factory floor and the fact that many of these workers live together when they're not working on the factory floor. They they live in tightly packed housing. And so if if what we believe about COVID-19 and the, and the kind of viral load thesis is true, they're just particularly vulnerable to this and no amount of wishing it so can just readjust the design of the factory space and the design of their living quarters. And is it a case that these these jobs are just so low paid that you probably wouldn't be able to get American workers to do them? It's possible. I mean, one, it is possible to raise the wages and look for other efficiencies, but that apparently is not being done. These companies also, like Smithfield, they engage in, you know, there are some incentives tucked away in America's immigration law to hire immigrant laborers. You know, in some cases, either these immigrant laborers can be paid less than native workers, or they have fewer rights in employment law than American workers, and so thus can be exposed to kind of different working demands than American workers. So that is going to continue to be an issue, right? That in some in some ways the government policy makes an immigrant worker more attractive. Yeah. And in some cases, I mean, there's also it looks to be plainly that there are illegal immigrant workers in some of these plants as well. Does this issue expose the the limits of Trumpism in a way, in that when it has to confront the hard reality of do we want America to be able to produce masses of cheap meat or do we need to restructure the economy in a fundamental way to better advantage working class Americans, rural Americans? It takes the easy option in the end. Sometimes, yes. I mean, one of the reasons why I think it's it's such a potentially devastating issue for Trump is that there's no easy solution for out of his politics, right? He's not putting Americans back to work processing cattle into the kind of products that appear in a grocery store is a kind of skilled labor. And you can't just recruit the National Guard to go in and do it in a pinch during a sickness. America's corporate 
demands for cheap labor and delivering cheap prices, the American consumer's expectation of cheap prices at the grocery store, you know, seem seem to conspire against a full-throated national approach. I mean, in some ways, right, if Americans wanted to preserve higher wages in this industry, they would have to do what happens across a lot of continental Europe, which is a more protectionist regime that is more expensive for the end product. What could that involve then? I mean, seeing as, you know, Smithfield is wholly owned by the Chinese, I mean, could you just re-nationalize it? I mean, that's quite an aggressive move. I mean, that would be very aggressive. I mean, there are options, but they are longer term projects, right, that, that don't address the immediate emergency of shortages in the United States. So you would have to have, you know, a national strategy of, of not allowing essential industries to be bought up by, you know, foreign financial institutions. You would have to have regulations that encouraged Americans to seek out this kind of work, even if they would. Well, that's something we're hearing quite a bit in Britain of, you know, you hear rumors in Westminster that there's a lot of sort of the government are itching to not take revenge, but to 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 ditch Huawei 5G, for instance, right. after this as soon as possible. But they're not going to make any announcement on it for the time being because they desperately need to work these supply chains as hard as they possibly can while this crisis is going on. And so there's right. a sort of reckoning, but it's going to come way down the line now. If it comes at all, right? I mean, there's, there's the possibility, of course, right, that after that this uh, crisis is so going to tax the current governments in power, going to tax their energy just to get through it, and then leaving tremendous piles of debt or unemployment at the end of it, that there may be very little taste for the kind of disruption that a strongly nationalist response would require. I mean, would would the UK withstand the kind of attempt to, you know, stand up Marconi again in the uh, telecom sphere? I'm not sure. Go back to 2G. Yeah. <laughs> and then who, what, which American group would buy Smithfield from the Chinese? And how, how would you arrange that? I mean, those are, those are complex questions and they don't, I suspect that at the end of this, there's going to be such a demand for, snapping back to normal, that all the energy will be on just getting people back to work, fixing essential services, and these larger geopolitical questions may be deferred or kicked down the road again. Yes. I I mean, I remember once a British MP telling me that everybody thinks that it's all about gas prices with voters, petrol prices, gas prices, but it's actually really about internet connection speeds and things like that and that's what really sways <laughs> local voting and i wonder if meat is to americans what what internet has become to brits because i suppose you're you're actually american broadband's pretty pretty good and uh, yes. and gas is gas is at record lows now so the big concern will become the big vote winner or loser might be something like supermarkets like how is your supermarket shop right i mean it's it's a testament though to the um you know, we're finding out that efficiency in supply chains is is a kind of brittleness that, you know, one of the reasons there was this run on toilet paper in the United States was not just total irrational panic. I mean, it literally is that the toilet roll industry is set up to supply office parks and other businesses for a certain amount of flushes. And when those office parks are emptied and people return home and 
use toilet roll at home, it runs out at the supermarket relatively quickly and you have to readjust. And so the same thing is happening in the food industry where we're seeing that in this lockdown period, Americans are consuming even fewer vegetables than normal because they tend to eat vegetables at restaurants rather than at home. And we're seeing that some supermarkets are straining to supply their customers. And we're seeing restaurant suppliers try to retool to be home delivery outfits. And my own house has experimented with that too. Some states are allowing home delivery booze, aren't they? Yes, there's some home delivery booze. and, And there have been, you know, some states have lifted restrictions on open containers and things like that in cars so that you could, you know, place an order at a restaurant and order, you know, a pitcher of margarita and bring it home without breaking the law. Well, I remember when when you and I worked at the American Conservative, a sort of thing that was bubbling up was uh, crunchy conservatism. Right. That sort of spoke to a kind of very conservative sense that there's something very wrong with our high consumption, high calorie lifestyle that we live in in America and in Britain too. I wonder how when faced with a meat shortage that sort of thinking does it does it go away when as Americans are confronted with the reality of not having any meat or does it actually tie into it? I think some of those notions have been challenged, right? That you know, you would expect a lot of religious conservatives to thrill to the idea that, you know, there's more time spent at home, there's more homeschooling, there's more people using less <laughs> there's more homeschooling there's less tinder usage going on <laughs> in the world all these things have gone down but in fact going through it you know reminds you that how good work work and play are for the for the soul yeah. um, <laughs> if there is some kind of transformation in the way americans source their food it may build on on some of the existing local movements you know you may see people signing up more for their local farmers markets or or whatever but you know i think like i said i think the most powerful desire after this is going to be to get back to normal get back to the way things were yeah well we talked a bit about china and i've just been editing a piece suggesting that china will become the big theme of this election because, I mean, in, in many ways, it was a, a big theme that was sort of unnoticed, but it was a big theme for the Trump campaign in 2016. And now in 2020, you're going to have Biden and Trump both trying to sort of outhawk each other on China. One naturally would think that Trump would be in the stronger position there. Would you agree? It may be tough because while Biden has always has supported, you know, supported China's entry into the World Trade Organization he has been a consistent supporter of the policy of trade liberalization with China, that it would lead to political liberalization. And Trump can hit him on those things. But Trump is a little vulnerable as well, particularly because the timing of this crisis was bad for him. He had been conducting a trade war with China for whatever you think of the results of that up until January of this year. And then it was called off and many statements were made about how great Chairman Z was and how they're working together to find a solution. And Trump seemed particularly 
thrilled at the idea that this was also causing the stock market to froth and really reach new highs at the beginning of his election year. Yes. And then immediately afterward, he's confronted with this crisis. And Biden has been cutting ads, you know, suggesting that Trump is too soft on China, which which was a surprise. But the timing was pretty terrible for Trump. Yes. So did Trump think that the the China deal was going to be the kind of cherry on top of his beautiful economy? Yeah, I think I think so. Yeah. You know, he was definitely hearing from the Wall Street Journal editorial board, from big financiers that the the only problem that they saw in the American economy was this uncertainty going forward about China. And so at least for election year, he could wrap that up, patch things up with Chairman Z and move forward. And he, he attempted to do that in January and talk it up and stock markets, you know, did surge on that news into early February. And then, then we were hit with this. And that's interesting because, I mean, if you look at this, the Wall Street Journal's attitude to Trump, it's sort of warmed up, hasn't it? And now it's gone cold again because Trump sort of has to go back to being the economic nationalist that they so feared, I suppose, back in 2016. Yeah, and I think also, though, that a lot of the people that feared his economic nationalism, when they saw the substance of it, it wasn't as fearsome as they their, their worst nightmares. You know, the economy hummed along fine, under the tariffs and the various threats. People didn't like the bluster, right? That one day he would be going after China and the next day he would be challenging Justin Trudeau over milk or something like that. But beyond that, it didn't provide a huge impediment. And ultimately Trump did come around to what he said, which was that he was a trade hawk because he was a free trader, that he he just wanted America to cut better deals. And so his strategy was to make a lot of noise, noisy complaints about NAFTA and then present his renegotiated Canada-American-Mexico trade deal. And then he made a lot of noise and and there were some real tariff exchanges and trade actions between China and the United States. And then he was going to patch that up. So, you know, I think Trump may try to make, you know, they've been road testing an argument of, we made the greatest economy the United States has ever had, and we're going to do it again after this crisis. I'm not sure that that's a great re-election campaign if we're facing 15 or 20 or 25% unemployment. Well, I suppose it depends on whether he can get the bounce going back before November. Yes. I mean, we would need a, we would need a really strong summer and then a September in which there wasn't some giant spike in infections and fear. What do you think the atmosphere... It's hard to get a real sense of what the political atmosphere is at the moment because of the the, the sort of craziness of the virus. But initially we saw that spike, a bump in Trump's popularity, not quite as high as a lot of other world leaders, but it was still... It went up. And now it seems to be going down again. And, of course, the sort of... the Most of the media are saying that he's been found out by the virus. Do you go along with that? I do go along with that somewhat. He has announced a lot of initiatives in this coronavirus crisis that just haven't come to pass. And further, you know, I think the White House has even recognized that his messaging doesn't always help. And they're starting to cut back on the daily briefings. You know, six weeks ago, he was bragging about the ratings he was getting. 
and now he seems to be wanting to avoid the headlines and verbal slip-ups and that he's been inserting into them. So, you know, this this crisis certainly hasn't helped. I mean, it's taken away the biggest thing he wanted to run on, which was the strong economy. So, you know, I would say Trump is not the favorite right now, even if his opponent seems to be, you know, decomposing in each new interview from whatever secure bunker he is in. Well, actually, if, if, if you don't mind, let's touch on that a little bit, because, I mean, the Tara Reid story has been brewing, and Biden today has issued a statement denying that her allegations of sexual assault are in any way true. But of course, as loads of right-wingers really enjoy pointing out, it's a case of biter bitten for a lot of Democrats because of the Brett Kavanaugh allegations. Right. Well, I mean, there just is more substance to this allegation than there was to the main one featuring in the Kavanaugh story. There's more contemporaneous evidence of the woman telling friends or family members of her being upset. There are, you know, documents that have yet to be examined by the media, whereas in the Kavanaugh story, we had sleuths going after the yearbooks and trying to interpret the weird code that high schoolers write to each other in them. So it's hard to know what to make of the allegation itself. I mean, Joe Biden should enjoy the presumption of innocence. But of course, an election isn't a court of law. Yes. And he is famously handsy. Well, yeah. I mean, the whole campaign almost fell on its face right at the start over this issue of Joe Biden sniffing people and (laughs) hugging them too long and all these videos of women cringing while his hands go all over them. And he made a big public apology about it. So, you know, at one point, the New York Times wrote about that when they first wrote about these allegations, they said, you know, there are no other allegations of sexual assault besides all the times that Joe Biden has made women uncomfortable with (laughs) his touching, petting, kissing and sniffing. How serious a problem do you think it is for his for his campaign? I don't think it's a very serious problem. You know, feminist voters, voters who are motivated by feminism care about the president's position on abortion and judges and access to women's health. And so they will just conclude Joe Biden is better on these things than Donald Trump. The allegations against Donald Trump are at least as serious as far as personal misbehavior. And so they may not like voting for Joe Biden. They may wish there was another option, but they will decide it on the issues. So unless something more substantial was revealed, something that looked criminal and was undeniable emerged, I don't think it will affect his candidacy too much, but it will be, you know, there there will be Republicans putting pressure to see if that's there. And maybe even some Democrats too, who wish they had a more vigorous nominee or a more left-wing nominee. I wonder, I thought I'd ask you as, as a Catholic, another Catholic, what do you, how do you think the Catholic vote, because I know that people often sort of scorn at the idea of the Catholic vote, but the fact is it, as an aggregate, it does seem to have quite an important role in American elections. Trump won it in 2016. Biden is a Catholic. He's a he's a bad Catholic. He's pro, very pro-abortion. He's fully on board with the full LGBTQT agenda. But he wears a rosary. He goes on TV with the ashes on his head. And he culturally, he sounds like a Catholic 
and I imagine a lot of working class Catholics might identify with him. Do you think he's going to be effective in winning those voters? Because they are often in very crucial states. Right. I mean, there is a kind of swing vote quality to the Catholic vote in the United States. Usually the winner has won the Catholic vote in some way, even if it's not a unified block, even if polls showing that very religious Catholics who go to church at least once a week tend to be Republican, less religious Catholics tend to be Democrats. But there is a a kind of swing element to it in some of these crucial states. There's been some research on what are called double haters in the polling, which is people that hated both Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. Those voters broke decisively for Trump in 2016. But right now they're polling for Biden about 63 to 10. I suspect a lot of those are those Catholic voters who are neither irreligious nor very religious. And something about Joe Biden's personal presentation, his story, his empathy, you know, which is oozing off of him, appeals to them and appeals to his Irishisms. Yes. I think he may be more, you know, if Trump won the have a beer with you contest against Hillary Clinton, I think Biden can win that contest against Donald Trump. That's important for Catholics. We all have to admit that. (laughs) Rum, Romanism and rebellion once again. Um, (laughs) Well, we've gone from meat to the soul, but uh, we'll leave it there, Michael. Thank you very much for uh, joining us today. All right. Thank you so much, Freddie. Good to talk to you. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Americano. And I'd like to encourage you all to give us your feedback, positive comments or constructive comments only, please, to podcast at spectator.co.uk and say anything you like there as long as it's reasonably polite. 